how are you guys feeling about the deck? I'm sure you've been watching the reviews. How are you feeling at this point? I'd say uh, fairly positive. I mean, it's not like it was a 100% blown everyone out of the water success, but considering how early we are in the, in the journey, at least if some of the rumors about potential future plans are to be believed, seems like it's going pretty well. Yeah. I feel like my angle, where I could just potentially use it as a portable podcast rig for travel that fits in a backpack that doubles as a machine to play games on occasionally, I feel like that is looking good for me right now. That's probably going to play out pretty well. But they, they haven't released like the actual OS image to run on a desktop yet. And that's really, I think, when I get my hands on that, I'm going to have a much sounder, kind of deeper understanding if I'm actually going to be able to use that thing oh, as a daily driver. we want to play. The recovery image came out. You see that? Oh, no, I missed that. <laughs> it's kind of funny, actually. Uh, if you download the recovery image and you manage to get it up and going in a VM, and I've got some tips linked in the show notes, when it first boots, it's sideways like the deck would be. So it's it like boots from the right side of your screen to the left. That's some attention to detail <laughs> right there. It's pretty funny. There's a fix, though, uh, for that as well. But that's not, like, this is just the recovery OS. This is not Steam OS. I'm not, I'm not going to base my decisions and my opinions off this. But I'm watching it. It's pretty fun. I, I love seeing this stuff slowly come out. And you, you got to figure, like, Valve probably saw tens of thousands of more downloads of the OS recovery image, and they've actually shipped of decks at this point. No kidding. <laughs> Hello, friends, and welcome back to your weekly Linux talk show. My name is Chris. My name is Wes. And my name is Brent. Hey, guys. Coming up on the show this week, well, I actually have no idea. We have three topics, and I have no idea what these guys want to talk about. So to be specific, I know my topic, but each of us has a secret that we've brought to the show today, and we have no idea what those are because we have encrypted our show notes to prevent each other from discovering what we want to talk about today. <laughs> so we're going to sit back and just chat about whatever the three of us would like to talk about. Doesn't even necessarily have to be Linux specific, I suppose. Uh, and then we'll wrap it up and round it all up with uh, some boosts and picks and more. So before we go any further, it's time to say hello to our virtual lug. Time appropriate greetings, Mumble Room. Hello, Chris. Hello, Weston. Hello, Hello. Hello. 16 of them in there. Not our biggest showing, but a decent showing. Nice to have them there. Uh, and, you know, always available to anyone. More details at linuxunplugcom slash mumble. So before we get into the topics, and I know it's going to be a lot, so we want to make room. I have no idea how long, but I assume because of the length of these notes, it's going to take us a bit. So I want to mention, just remind everyone that we are planning, finally, it's been way too long. I think it's really been since Ohio Linux Fest. We have an East Coast Jupiter Broadcasting meetup coming up. They said it couldn't be done. That's right. But they were wrong. Now, are you sure? You, you still thinking about going? Yeah, um, I was just trying to work through some of that planning earlier this week. I know, both of you and I have to figure out doggy care. Yep, dog care, uh, life I already, plans. I booked my flights, though, because, you know, I'm a cheap, I'm a cheapskate, and so I wanted to get them while they were yeah, cheap yeah, as no, possible. You should. <laughs> Excellent news. But, uh, oh, man, you should go. With You know, we throw a little party. It's good, I'm just saying, if you had like a special occasion that weekend, it'd also be a good way for you to spend that special it's occasion. It's true. If you had such a special occasion, I wouldn't want to mention on air for security reasons. But anyways, meetup.com slash Jupiter Broadcasting. That's where you go to uh, sign up. Yesterday, I think, Alex went there and confirmed. because oh, I just a was scout like, out. Nice. I was like, this sounds too good to be true. But it is true. There is a barbecue joint that could easily handle like 30 people. We're going we're gonna to try to get an idea from the meetup and then give them a heads up. 
but it's a big joint. And on the other end of the park, where I think we'll hang out in the park, and on the other end of the park, he confirmed it with pictures, there is indeed a brewery. Amazing. What a good find. So, so awesome. It's all coming together. We're also going to bring some snacks. So there'll be some snacks there. And it's going to happen at 3 p.m. Eastern time. The meetup is in uh, Pacific time, but the uh, that's just because that's, I guess, how meetup.com runs it. Listen, date times are hard. Programmers hate them. As long as we've been using meetup, we've always struggled with this. It's like, why not set the time based on the location of the event? But they don't, I guess, expect you to be throwing events in other time zones. Yeah, we're not. We're not like the, the normal folks. Anyways, we got about 24 people, including ourselves so far, going. But uh, I'd love to see as many that could make it because we don't make it out there very often. So again, it'll be in Raleigh, North Carolina on Saturday, April 9th at 3 p.m. And we have details at meetup.com slash Jupiter Broadcasting. I think it's like the Nightdale Station Run. There's a park there. There's a barbecue joint. If you know the area, we'd love to see you there because it's going to be a blast. And then from the like category of how amazing is our audience, I got an email from listener Cole. He says, a longtime listener here. We've met many times at Linux Fest Northwest. In episode 444, you were talking about some RV problems. I am an electrician with 20 years of experience in the building trades in Seattle. I'd be happy to help any way I can. And so I reached out to Cole. Wow. And Cole's coming up next Saturday to hang out with uh, Hadia and I at Jupes. That's amazing. We're going to show him the because he said he wanted to see the power system. So we're going to show him the power system. I'm going to show him the wiring that's still not working that we've kind of patched around. Oh, for your slide. Mm-hmm. And see if maybe he has any ideas for that. I know it's a simple job, but it's just we tried patching it up and it's still not working. Oy. But uh, I am trying to get a road trip ready. So this is going to be a, a big help. And there is... There's a really great walk-up diner. I don't know if that's what you call it, but there's like a walk-up diner 10 minutes from where we're parked. Oh. I thought maybe we'd go and get a little lunch. Cole's about to find out. Yeah, he is. Oh, it's going to be great. Our audience, they have so many amazing skills. Yeah, they do. It's so great. It's just, man, you know, it's, you're sitting there and it was, you know, some people are behind, but they're like, oh, I'm going to give it a shot anyways. I'll reach out. I know I'm about a month late, but I'll try. Turns out you still have problems. (laughs) They sure do, Wes. I do. They're better. But Wes, I still definitely have problems. All right. So uh, we're going to break this up and we're each going to present our topic this week. And um, I think I'll go last just in case they go long because I can make mine as short or long as I need. Only because you know what it is. Yeah, (laughs) that's true. That's true. So we'll start with Brent and I will begin the decryption process. Now, to make sure that Wes and I had no idea what Brent was going to talk about, he did all of his show notes in the language of love this week. What do you have for us, Mr. Brent? Well, I did write my show notes en français, and uh, I also threw in a few little um, social decoys. So I'm just curious, do do either of you have any idea what I'm about to talk about? <laughs> well, <laughs> decoys, really? Decoys. I love this. He's, you're, you're, you're trying to throw us off your smell. You're, I see what you're doing here. Okay, so like a quick scan of a, I'm not trying to read it, but like I'm trying to read it is, I see something about uh, voter method technique, and then I also see something about like a <laughs> DMG2 image file. So those are separate things. <laughs> yeah. I don't know how they relate. If I'm looking at the commands, I see HFS plus in here. Oh, yeah. What's going on with that? So there? I'm feeling like maybe this is like something about converting a DMG, but I don't know because... Or is it a trap for uh, Mac users? Right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's very mysterious, Brent. It sounds like you have no idea, which I'm totally fine with. (laughs) 
<laughs> no, it's all, yeah, are we no, way off? Are we way off? Um, you have little tiny hints, and that's what I wanted this to be was kind of interesting. Like, okay. I wanted to give you guys little tiny hints, but that they be so not obvious that you actually have zero idea. Okay, I'm, I got another. I, okay, the other thing I'm noticing in here is that you are app get installing CD to ISO, and you're likely converting something that was like old to a new image standard, so that way you can access it in a machine that needs it as an ISO file for some reason. Yeah, you do have a link here that has some like dates, like 2005, something Brent 2007, so old media would make sense. <laughs> yeah, all right, yeah, perfect. All right. You guys have only dug down to like layer one, that's great. <laughs> um, but I was thinking about this kind of interestingly because um, when we came up with this concept, I thought, okay, I'm going to write mine in French because that seemed to work last time. Everybody sort of loved that. And you guys, as far as I understand, don't understand French that well, despite it being pretty close to English. And then it got me thinking... Any language you don't know is a form of encryption because it, it may look kind of seemingly familiar and yet there's you, you can't figure it out. So, but I didn't want it to be too easy because you could just go and convert that, you know, in Google Translate or something. So glad you guys didn't do that. Thanks for not breaking my encryption so easily. We have, I mean, we're somewhat comfortable with the honor system. <laughs> um, so my topic, I think, is... Um, each of us will have something to say about it. So, Chris, I think I'll go with you first. And uh, so here we go. So I would like to know each of you how you manage or if you even have a way of managing a knowledge base, a personal knowledge base. So this is a topic that's dear to me um, and that I have found extremely useful. And there are a few technologies that I'll mention um, once you guys are done that I use. But I'm curious, you know, for information that you learn – on a daily basis, which is how, how it is for me. How do you record that stuff? Where do you record it? Has that been working for you? How have you done in the past? Hmm. Boy, what a great question. What a great question. And uh, I will actually be touching on this a little bit today. <laughs> but I will say this. It depends on the context. Like, I feel like there's, there's institutional knowledge about how things work in JB that need to be captured in one way. Then there's like, knowledge about how my server setup in my Lady Jupes RV, how that's built and interconnected. That's another type of knowledge that needs to be captured. And then there's like the family records, medical records, uh, maintenance records for your vehicles and all of that. And each one of them, I've kind of stumbled into different solutions. And I, I mean, I don't love that, to be honest with you. And some of it's because maybe I started tracking this particular thing 15 years ago. And this next thing I started tracking, I started tracking two years ago. So I'm using something more modern. So I have a kind of a bit of a range depending on the topic. It's a bit of a hot mess. I, I fantasize about having one central knowledge base of all things, but I also don't want to manage that. Yeah, that was sort of my approach as well. Um, but I, I feel like you mentioned a bunch of different types of sensitivities of information. You know, some of it you want to share. Others is deeply personal and you should keep somewhere that nobody has their hands on. So that's where my curiosity came in is I feel like shortcuts to the things we learn are deeply personal. Like I have a, a, a giant folder of notes that are specific to technology and someone else who might look at it might have no idea what it actually is because they're all just like shortcuts to spaces in my mind. They're like reminders of you know, there might be a command there, and if, if you don't understand what it is, then you have no idea what it does. But through, like, decades of learning about rsync, for instance, um, I've memorized most of the flags that I use on a regular basis. But sometimes you just need a quick little, you know, you need to be able to get there really quickly. 
So Chris, do you have access to this stuff like on your phone or only when you're at home? Or is there a favorite platform that you're using right now that you're really excited about? This is where TailScale changed it for me. Um, because with Nebula, I had connected my servers. But with TailScale, I've connected all of my front-end systems. And they, then all of a sudden, the stuff that, that was the domain of Lady Jupes and only lived in Lady Jupes now existed on this private mesh LAN that I have. And that all of a sudden opened up all of access to all of that stuff that I had stored there. So now I do have access to all of it. But my most common high-level way to collect information is I generally attempt to just store the link where I found that information and archived if possible. So I've used a lot of different tools like Wallbag and Pinboard and Digo and she's probably ones I'm not even remembering at the moment. There's different eras of those kinds of tools. For sure, right? And so a lot of times I have, like say something with Wallbag or Pinboard, I will tag it. I'll tag it with, you know, a show, a topic, a project that's mentioned in there. And then I can go back and filter on those tags later and find the links. Um, And then we've even gone as far as generating bots that ingest the feeds and these tags and then put them into different discussion groups that are relevant to those shows. And so that was sort of the next step is then exposing that information to the appropriate place once I've ingested it so it doesn't just get you know out of sight, out of mind. It sounds like a nice level of sophistication, actually. Um, Wes, I'm curious about you. Yeah, you know, I've, I've also kind of dabbled with various tools and I've had a few different wikis that I've run for myself and also kind of kept like yeah, some of the open source uh, Kanban board systems. So far, Markdown files and plain text has been mostly what I've stuck with. I think because I don't actually at the moment have that much, I'm not really cataloging or using the like, interrelationships of data very much. You know, a lot, a lot of the things that I tend to have will be focused on a particular domain and then have examples or, yeah, Chris, you've said some you know, archive of links and sort of like here's some references if you want to go dive back into this topic and here's an example of what you were playing with last time you were here. Right now, I don't care that much about going to find my own notes from that beyond mm. what Grep is doing. I know that there's a lot of tools for that. I just didn't find myself really taking advantage of it. Right. Sometimes so if this you is just working. see the source again. Okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. What it's about- not great, though, and it's not fancy. And to your guys' point, I don't have a way. I've thought about doing it. I just kind of haven't of yeah. like capturing that stuff on the go. So I just have ways of sending myself notes for later anyway that I just integrate. What about integrate. dollar sign day job where you're like developing maybe a, a piece of code or solving a problem? Do you have anything to store like... Do you ever go back and like, oh, I know I solved this problem a couple of years ago and have yeah, that sounds have something tucked away? Yeah, I mean, that's a similar kind of thing, right? Various scripts and sources on the same stuff. Um, but it's mostly just files with, you know, there's like a few, a little bit of folder structure. Are you more likely to just write the solution again from scratch with modern skills than go back and grab it and just re-implement? I think it depends, you know. I find that, yes, it will probably need a little bit of diving back in anyway. So it's sort of like, what, how much do I capture and how much do I provide ways of getting back to where that knowledge, you know, where, because sometimes the difficulty is not necessarily understanding. It was just like, how did I find the details of, you know, where the inner workings of X thing was? And so if you can capture a little bit of that of like, here's how I used it, or here's, here's where those API docs are actually stored. That's like all the jump back that you need. But that depends, like that's it. The frequency with which you access it and plan to access it is a huge factor in all of that, right? True. That sounds very similar, though, to how I operate. Very much how I kind of think about it. And then I do have, for like bookmarks and stuff, there I have more of a tagged system. I've thought about having more, you know, tags or other things more widely used, but right now it's a bit of a minimalist system. I'll be quite upfront about that. 
I ebb and flow. Like sometimes it's minimal tags and sometimes I'm like all the metadata. <laughs> See, I lean a little bit towards Wes's approach and I'll give you a sense of why in a second here. So for me, I've, I've landed on Nextcloud a few years ago, actually, and just marked down text files for most of it. You know, not everything can be captured that way, but that has been an amazingly simple solution for me and with a problem I struggled with for years before that. And I think the main reason is for future proofing. Like Chris, I know you're using some fancier technologies than maybe some markdown and text files. And there's some people in the chat room who I'll bring in in a sec who are also using some pretty cool stuff. But I worry about, you know, the maintenance that goes into that. And, you know, in five years, is that stuff still going to be accessible? That's something I worry about. Yeah. Do you have a way to export it? But then even then, are you going to then convert it or hope that whatever your next tool is supports importing from that? Or there's some middle ground format you have access to? which is then maybe some kind of just plain or plainish text. And uh, there's, there's another big constraint uh, for me as well, but I think I'll probably touch on that during my topic as a hint. Ooh. <laughs> uh, in the chat room, Casey, you, uh, can you talk a little bit about what you're doing? Yeah, I've been using uh, an open source app called Trillium for about a year and a half now. Um, it just hit version 0.5. Uh, so you know, highly recommend folks go check it out if they checked it out before and it wasn't quite mature enough for them. I think it hits a lot of the points that you guys have been mentioning here. So uh, for, for starters, it does like have Markdown kind of support when you're you're editing. It's a rich text editor that like uses Markdown to you know indicate, hey, you put a hashtag, that means like that's a header, or stars turn into bullets, things like that. But I think that like probably a little more like on the nose of it, it is like it does have a self-hosted component to it. So you can have a Trillium server uh, that you put in a Docker Compose config. That's what I do. You, you put it behind, you know, whatever security you want to put it behind. It has its own password system, but you can also, you know, I, I have it set up so I have to actually wire guard into the, the network that I'm hosting it on. And then from there, like it has desktop, well, Electron apps um, or web browser interfaces to it that you can use to sync your notes from like an offline a uh, copy of it to this like sort of like centralized server. So it's sort of a start topology. And then what I think is like really cool is because it is does have like the, the support for this centralized server, you get a lot of really cool like ways to get data into it. So for instance, there's a browser extension that you can just one click, you know, go on your, when you have a page open and it will save a copy of the page in your journal under that day that is fully searchable. It's all in, a, you know, a SQL database. And then you can, you know, just dump that SQL database if you want to back it up or you can, you know, it, it saves in a particular directory. So I just back up that whole directory on Nextcloud. But on top of that, I think it's really cool because of the fact that, you know, Wes, you said you hadn't really talked about the interrelationship between notes. This has first class support for like linking between notes, which is always like, okay, that's, that's table stakes. Mm -hmm. But you can add metadata properties to your notes. So I actually have on my journal both like a weight tracker so I can keep track of like how I'm gaining and losing weight over time. And I just, you know, punch in the number uh, via, you know, my, my cell phone browser each morning. And then I can go back and scrape that data later to get like a nice little line chart of how I've been doing over the last few months. All right. All right. You're you know what? I'm going to check this out after the show. You're kind of speaking my language here. It does sound very cool. It's really awesome. It's still kind of new. We're, we're still, you know, only at 0 0.50, but like, oh man, mm -hmm. we're, I'm really proud of how, how things have been going on this project and I, I contribute both financially and technically. So uh, I'm always happy to speak to how cool Trillium is. It takes a little bit to set up and get used to, but like once you get into the groove of it, 
you know, that's something that's going to stick with me for years to come. Yeah, I'm liking you're just entering information in on the phone as you go. Yeah. So Trillium, we'll have a link to that in the show notes if people listening want to check it out. That's very cool. I wanted to touch back on some of my show notes, gentlemen, because you mentioned them. There is a command that I ran there, a nice little fine command that uh, told me what the oldest note is in my notes folder. And so it oh, okay. uh, looks like 2010 is the oldest modification time from what I can ga- gauge. But the first time I really started building this knowledge base uh, was way back in like 2007, I think, on a Palm Z22. I don't know if anyone had a Palm device. Chris, you might have <laughs> might have had some. I will. I actually never owned one, but I definitely was responsible for fixing them. That I definitely really? did. <laughs> I would have definitely taken <laughs> yeah. you as someone who would have grabbed it up right away. There's, they were super useful. I dabbled. Dabbling. I yeah, see. I definitely dabbled. Mm-hmm. And so this was a you know relatively simple device back then. And it just took notes and kept track of like uh, contacts and things like that. The things that we take for granted, I think, these days on our phones. But that was a total like change, a shift in paradigm for me. And I just have been endlessly curious and gathering information ever since. Yeah, I, I also I should have mentioned I also keep paper notes, which these are not like the notes I expect to capture forever. But um, I really don't like. And I don't like it when I end up using the platform's note system. Uh-huh, right. I, I have ended the up using Google Keep. always tempting you. Or Apple Notes. Uh-huh. And I'm like, oh, it's, just, it's just a quick note, Chris. Yeah, so that's definitely, um, that's definitely something I'm going to work on. Trillium sounds like it has some real potential over the long term there. Yeah, Brent, I've, you know, I've watched you take notes, too, with paper. I know, uh, you know just pen and paper can be a way you'll capture thoughts, too. Do you back those up later? Do you save those notebooks? <laughs> Do you capture that? I think you probably see me doing that mostly for show prep. Um, I have clearly decided uh, that trying to grab stuff outside of Linux Unplugged, but trying to grab stuff for like real deep person-to-person conversation is is just better on paper. And I know you've dabbled with that a little bit, um, but anytime I'm doing like a brunch interview or a one-on-one with someone, I find, you know, just spending five minutes and writing things down there's something that happens where I hardly refer to those notes because the process of writing them down just kind of solidifies them in my mind. And the thing that I think you'll appreciate that I most enjoy about that is that it, because it's in my mind in a slightly more permanent way in that moment, I could then be very creative on the spot about the layout of those topics as the conversation's flowing. Whereas on paper or notes, I find that a little bit more difficult. So I'll, I'll often, as the conversation is going, just kind of like scratch notes out or add extra ideas as the conversation's happening. Um, but I certainly do keep all those notebooks. There's one actually right in front of me. I'm looking at it and it's, uh, every brunch conversation I've had in one notebook. And, uh, there's another one just next to my desk here. That's a bunch of scribbles about uh, when we were at the studio last doing a bunch of projects and just like some creative fumbling around with paper and sketching out, you know, the server cabinet that we made. And so I think there is a place for both, you know, digital notes you want to keep for a while and uh, paper notes that are more just a creative process. I do envision saving some of those, but I never get around to it. So there you go. Yeah, there is something about thinking on paper that's... You know, it's slower. It sort of absorbs into you as you as you have painstakingly go along and capture all of it. I can't quite understand why I could type a note and forget it in ten seconds. And if I write that same exact note down, <laughs> I may remember it forever. 
it's so weird. Maybe it's because I do one thing all the time and I comparatively do the other thing rarely. I feel like maybe that's a feature as well. If you're if you're typing something in a digital note, the whole point is for you to be able to forget it until you need it again. So I don't know, different space for different different type of uh, ideas, perhaps. Oh, I, I think you know. Shout out to OneNote. I think we should get the OneNote story in the post show because uh, you know that's. I think that's a post show topic. If you ask me, <laughs> not quite on topic. <laughs> so, gentlemen, um, you skipped right over a honeypot I left for you. I left a little uh, doom on the Z22 link for you, and you guys didn't even mention it. I'm surprised. I did see that. However, out of respect to the honor system, I did not click any links. So I I saw it. I left that there to test your sort of, hmm, ideals. (laughs) You were testing us? Ouch. Where's the the trust? Amazing. So that was another another decoy in here? Oh, yeah. I, I'm I'm very <laughs> impressed, both of you gentlemen, for not having clicked on it. But uh, maybe you'll click on it at some point. Yeah, I mean, geez, now I'm going to wonder. Now I'm going to wonder. Very good. Well, a fascinating topic and one that I'd love to hear from the audience. LinuxUnplugged.com slash contact. Linode.com slash unplugged. You know, I, I don't know. I was feeling nostalgic. I pulled out my old original notes when Linode first became a sponsor, like two and a half years ago or whatever it's been now. Paper notes that you still have. Paper notes. Uh, it's awesome. So you go to linode.com slash unplugged, according to my notes. And if you go there, you'll get $100 in 60-day credit towards a new account. And it's also a way to support the show. We've been spinning up Linodes recently just to play around. Actually, we always do that. I should mention, this is a great way to actually use Linode because if you look at the pricing, it's it's fantastic for this, especially if you get a $100 credit. But it's a great way to spin up fast machines and try out an open source project because the software installs crazy fast. Linode's got 40 gigabit connections coming into those machines, so they download software crazy fast. They got all the different distributions. In fact, I noted in my notes right here, <clears throat> this is a legit note to Chris from like two and a half years ago. Personally, one of the things that I think is great about Linode is that they have all these distributions they support. They even have Alpines, Arches, CentOS, and for some reason they have OpenSUSE. <laughs> you're, a, you're a cold, cold I just, back then. I just didn't like SUSE that much back then. <laughs> I just didn't like it very much. And I was like, why would they have that? Now I'm like, it's great. Now I think it's a, now I think it's a feature. Um, but I said, what I really get about them is you can definitely tell they love Linux. I put that in there, right there. This is the uh, fake paper. It's not real, but it's not fake either. It's paper. What is it? Who knows? But I really, you know, those are things that still resonate with me. But go over there and get the $100, try it out and build something. The great thing is their infrastructure is so impressive. I mean, they've been doing this for 19 years. You could throw millions of users at your website and it's going to do fine. But they have a pricing structure such that if you just want a website, maybe you want to run like a public version of Prism for friends and family, you know, the photo hosting thing that's like Google Photos, but self-hosted. You could do that for a few users up there. You could do it for thousands. They have that kind of power. Uh, and I've put it to the test. We have, uh, I think probably one of the more stressful things we've done is we ran a really aggressive test against PeerTube on Linode, where we spun up multiple Linodes because they've got 11 data centers around the world. So we spun up one Linode, here, uh, I think on the West Coast, or sometimes we do it in Texas, depending, or on sometimes in the East Coast. But we spun up one Linode, started a PeerTube instance on there, and then spun up a bunch of other Linodes around the world and had it all connect in to that PeerTube instance. And then while we were live, we also had the audience all connect in. And really, was it was, it was damn impressive what that thing could take. It really, they just really built it well. 
So go build Trump something. Go go try something. I don't know. Go learn something and support the show. Linode.com slash unplugged. That's Linode.com slash unplugged. All right, just let's do a quick spot of housekeeping here because uh, I don't think we want to... Uh, we don't want to take too long on this, but there's a couple of things we wanted you to know about. There is a testing week coming up for Ubuntu 2204. The release is about seven weeks away, and the alpha is happening. The alpha testing is happening now, which is the 6th of March, to the 10th of March. The beta release will be March 31st, and the final release of Ubuntu 2204 is currently scheduled, and they usually hit it every time, for April 21st, 2022. So now is the time to help the Ubuntu project out, and it really matters on these LTSs. Uh, they reached out, and we wanted to make sure that we got that covered. Yeah, go bang on things. See if you can break it. Yeah. And then we're thinking about covering IPFS. By the way, I'm thinking about covering IPFS, guys. I love it. <laughs> it just came to me this morning. Uh, we've been meaning to talk about IPFS for a while. It was an interplanetary file system, right? I've, I checked it out years ago, but I, I need to deep dive again. I'm fascinated by its potential. So let's talk about it. And if you are a topic expert, send us a boost to what you know or linuxunplugged.com slash contact. Let us know your experience with it and what you use it for so we can integrate that into our coverage next week. Yeah. And then eventually it'll get captured in a trillion. <laughs> yeah, probably. All right, Mr. Payne. Are you ready? Yeah, let's <laughs> decrypt this. <laughs> this is a big, big old block of something in here. I have no idea, uh, you know, I just figured why bother, but let's begin the decryption process. Oh, wait a minute. Why does it smell like dog food? Well, that's, that's an integral part of the process. <laughs> no, actually, this is just some base 64, um, encoded binary bytes, which is itself a, uh, XE compressed brain fuck program <laughs> okay so if you get if you actually and that was mostly just so that it could actually fit in the dock in a decent way that didn't overwrite the whole thing i was wondering how you were going to pull that off that's why i ended up going my route which we'll talk about in a bit is like how do you not because if you properly encrypt show notes it's just going to be pages and pages right so i was, quite, I was curious how you'd solve that problem yeah so that wasn't, you know, that didn't seem obscure enough because this is all just a little bit of security theater, of course, right? And 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 the trust that Brent didn't didn't show for us. <laughs> but if you if you got through base sixty four in uh, un XZ, I wasn't sure if either of you had ever seen or heard of Brainfuck before. It's a bit of a bit of a weird one. I have heard of it, but I have to admit I am ignorant as to really what it does. But I, how I, you know that's a name that just happens to stick. Well, it's great because it's it's an esoteric programming language, but it's super simple. It has a, a very limited set of basic commands, so you're programming at a super low level, and that means you you, you can't really tell what's going on here. I'll put a little sample in the doc for you. Yeah, okay. And uh, we'll link to some. It's right above my encryption. Yeah, I see that. And so you know, you just see a bunch of dashes and yeah. plus and caret symbols, but but. You can write a brainfuck program to print out text. So if you get my brainfuck program, load it up in a brainfuck interpreter, run it, it'll print out my topic for the day. But it's specifically like your brainfuck program, like you built a brainfuck program. Well, I used a tool that helped me do right, that. Yeah, but sure. Yes. So it, so it's like your own personal executable. Mm-hmm. Cool. Well, it's interpreted. It's a little script that runs. Yeah, yeah. So I have to have brainfuck installed, and then I have to run your brainfuck little interpreter. Thing. Yeah, you, th- you you put my program okay. through it, and then right. it will. Is uh, it in the uh, repo? Oh, you can do it online too. Oh, really? Like a web-based version? Okay, where do I go? This is exciting. This is quite exciting. 
Uh, yeah. Uh, so you're going to want to go to uh, copy.sh slash brainfuck. Uh, that's brain with a Y, right? No, okay. Uh, all right. So I see. I have a. I do. I, now I go take what you've added here. Yeah. Although you probably want the uh, you want the full version, okay. huh? Right. Like uh, this is a this is big. This is fun. I'm curious, like how much data is in this too? Like that's one of the interesting things about this. All right. So yeah, I've so got the full like, thing. Oh no. So that won't because that. Let me. Uh, I'm I'm getting oh. it for you here. Oh, got okay. it. Uh, right. And uh, we'll put a link to copy.sh/slash/brainfuck in the show notes too. Yeah, uh, because you got to see this. This is a great way to like just pass information around right out there in the open. This is fantastic. We're really teaching people how to be sneaky. <laughs> Isn't that our goal every week? I, I guess. How I to guess. take over the world? Okay, so uh, let me replace this sample with, mm-hmm. uh, and you'll see why I didn't paste it directly because it's kind of it's kind of beefy. All right, I'm looking forward to this. Where'd it go, Wes? Oh, it is. It's it's in there. Oh, this whole thing. I have to take all of this. Yeah. Holy crap. Do I start with the periods? or yep, do I, yep, starts at the... Oh my gosh, no wonder. Oh my gosh. This is, this is what, eight pages, nine pages deep? Maybe more? Maybe way more? <laughs> Holy crap! Uh, if you double-click, if you take a look in the rendered one, uh-huh, you can and you double-click double it, it, make I it think, easy on myself? Yeah. I could have done that, huh? Now do I hit run? Or what hit run. I, okay, oh my gosh. Okay, so now I think, is this markdown that's coming out on the other end? Yep. This is pretty cool. A moment of appreciation for open source maintainers and community. Ah, oh, that's a great idea. So tell us what you have here. It looks like you have some links. Yeah. Uh, well, I was I was wanted to see if you if you guys kind of agreed. Um, you know, we we talk a lot about open source. Obviously, we all sort of talk about how we love it, but I I worry too that maybe we get a little uh, jaded, somewhere between jaded, take it for granted, and then especially like like you and I. You know, on on land, we're covering a lot of the news, and a lot of times, a lot of the news are like security issues. Like, True. just whenever you're talking about NPM and LeftPad and Log for Shell and Color JS mm-hmm. and Faker JS, and there's just over the past year or two, I think there's been a lot of articles kind of mentioned just like this. Oh, how how will we how will we solve open source software security, and is it even tenable to use open source software? And I mean, some of these are quite hyperbolic takes. I'm not saying we take those seriously, but it. Um, all right, there's all on the other end of the spectrum. There's how is how is open source going to be sustainable? The cloud vendors are eating it alive. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And we talk a lot about you know the the difficulties of being an open source maintainer and all the work that goes into it, often thankless or underpaid or if paid at all. Yeah. Um, and I so I'm not trying to say that that those are not real because those are absolutely real. I just worry that because we talk so much about them, it's kind of like a you know the news covers the bad things sort of sort of same thing. Uh, that we forget sometimes about how nice it is that we get to use and interact with all this open source software. And I had a small example at work this week that I thought I'd share just as like a, like, oh, this was nice. And it reminded me about why I value being able to use it and depend on it so much. Oh, great. Um, so here I was uh, writing some tests and uh, built built up a thing on my system. And it's broken. Doesn't work. Weird cryptic error. Uh, and a little bit of background is I'm using a couple things. One is PyTest, which is a framework for testing. So it sort of lets you, you know, you write your test files and it'll go find them on disk and get things up and set them all up for you and execute them and report back how your tests went. Python also um, has asynchronous programming. So in addition to like regular functions, you can make async functions. Uh, PyTest has a plugin that helps make these act more like regular functions. So you don't have to worry about some of the async details. It'll handle like automatically setting them up and scheduling Handy. them on an event loop. And Ooh, yeah, it'll, yeah, you know, so it does some, some little magic wrapping to make that happen. 
I also use a project called Hypothesis, which is a, which is a great name, although kind of hard to Google sometimes if you don't know what you're doing, especially because there's so much like data science that's done in Python <laughs> as well, and they also oh, use man. you know like hypothesis testing. So you gotta like you gotta like figure out okay, what do I pen this with? If, yes, <laughs> thankfully they've got like a good read the docs page that has basically all you need. Um, it's a tool for what's called uh, generative testing, and so the idea is instead of um, specific test cases, not that you wouldn't do this too, but to go to the next level, uh, you describe the shape of your input. So maybe that's like input to an API or to a particular function call, and so that can be nested data structures. It could just be like, this function takes one integer and one string type. And then hypothesis will handle generating a bunch of data from that description, and then throwing it against your function or API. And then you can give it some sort of assertions that you say like, given this input, I expect these things to be true about whatever happened in the background or whatever output I got. So then are you essentially doing like programmatic input at scale to these things? Yeah, and then it can handle like making a bunch of stuff and then it tries to find like little test cases to show. And it's really good at, especially with some strings and other stuff, you know, it'll test all the like really big numbers. If you say I'd just take a number or weird Unicode strings and just it's a nice way to get yourself some extra testing and kind of check your own assumptions about what you think your program is doing. Yeah. But to do that, they're both sort of manipulating these tests because Hypothesis sort of takes some of the role of executing because it does a whole bunch of examples and kind of takes over from the test framework. So somewhere between Hypothesis, PyTest itself, and this PyTest async plugin support, it just wasn't working anymore. Jeez, man. <laughs> now, normally, uh, these stuff, I, whenever I find an issue, it's already reported. This time, uh, yeah, it had sure. only just been reported, so I was able to dig in a little bit and help. But I, I was just really impressed because... You know, there'd just been a hypothesis release. Before, like, knowing any details, they were already like, okay, like, within 24 hours, we'll, we'll try to have this either fixed or rolled back. And admittedly, like, this is not a huge deal. It really isn't because, like, I can just pin that to the last release and move on. It's just a, it's a particular tool used during testing. It doesn't affect production. It's, it's really not a big deal. But I thought that was, like, the, they, they didn't need to be that immediate about it. Yeah, it strikes me. It's like when the developer is engaged... It's the experience uh, in your at your position is so far above and beyond the kind of care you get from a commercial software developer. It's next level. It reminds me when you and I were implementing that uh, DCA bot yeah, on the server yeah. here, and you discovered what was it? There was like a Python project in there that had a bug, um, and the developer was like all over it. I can't oh, it was some of their what's getting the Docker stuff working and um, how the libraries were packaged in. Yeah, I thought internally there was some other thing that you discovered. And then you went to their GitHub and the developer was already all over it. And you can really see, like, if you pick the right stack, in other words, if you use a well-supported software project when you're building stuff, like, the response and the care and the enthusiasm and joy that the developer can get out of it is infectious. And it's, like like I just said, it's beyond anything you're ever going to get from a support contract. I was also impressed in this case because uh, it actually turned out that one of the issues with the hypothesis had, so it kind of has to detect, try to auto-detect some stuff about the function that it's, it's wrapping and, and running under test. Uh, and it got better at doing that with that latest release. Unfortunately, that meant it kind of uncovered a bug in the PyTest async I.O. support. Or it was one of those situations where it's kind of murky, like, are, is it both having bugs? Is it, you know, like, what's, what should happen here? And there, but there wasn't any blame. Uh, the hypothesis folks weren't like, no, this was a PyTest async I.O. problem. We're not doing anything. Like, they still fixed and, and did some updates and opened an issue with the other team who were receptive about it and got it fixed. And so at the end of the day, like a day later, I could undo my pin and just keep going about my life but seeing immediately like all the hard work that went into it to make that happen. 
Yeah, and not that. No, it's his problem, not my problem. Which no, it's not that I should expect, but just with humans and you yeah. know, <laughs> and we certainly sometimes cover the drama that can happen in, in yep. pull requests out on GitHub. It was just nice to to not see that. Indeed, that is a great story. Thank you for sharing that with us. It it does remind me that uh, there is a lot of good going on in open source, which is probably exactly what we needed. So we'll have a link to uh, Brainfuck, which is looks like a great way to hide stuff in plain sight. <laughs> and it's neat. You know, there's just some weird programming languages out there, and uh, it can be fun to play with. That's absolutely true. All right. So uh, I decided for my topic to encrypt it in a very in plain sight kind of way. And I was also trying to solve the problem of how to not completely overtake the doc with like 32 pages of characters. And I thought, well, I could uh, I could link to like a, a paste bin kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And I almost went that route. But I felt like kind of was in violation of the spirit of the idea. And I wasn't sure. Sh- I thought we should have talked about that first. So what I decided to do instead is go for a simple route, a classic route that works every time. A mystery in plain sight. I went for steganography with a picture of Levi. It's got a a little bow tie in here, and uh, steganography is great because you can hide information in plain sight. And it would have worked perfectly if uh, I wasn't using Markdown. (laughs) But the encoder tool I used butchered my Markdown a little bit. So it wasn't wasn't great, but I think the concept was still solid. I felt like like, So not only did you ruin partially your Markdown, you made the picture of Levi slightly degraded, which uh, that should be a sin right there. And 8.9 megabytes. Yeah, it really... (laughs) It's like, if you were looking to see which photo had the secret information, and this isn't even a ton of information, you would just look at the file size and be the one of these is not like the others (laughs) so it's not that sneaky but um i have found this great little spot some friends of the family out in uh really just like the bottom of the cascades just really at the foothill uh but the only problem is and we want to go out there to visit them but the only problem is well it's a great thing but there's no internet out there it's possible the starlink might work but i i actually i don't know because they tried to get starlink out there and they told them it's not available Oh, I've decided what I want to do is rebuild my offline Oracle. And this is an idea that I've talked about on self-hosted before. And it's to create a self-sufficient knowledge base in the RV that essentially creates the experience of being online without being online. And so here's my thinking on this. Well, I like this. There are two different options, and I'm, I'm going to play with both of them. But I'd really like people's feedback, too, on YouTube server, YouTube DL servers. I'd love it to be YTDL server that runs in a container on a Raspberry Pi. And it gives me a web interface that I just drop a YouTube URL into. And then it downloads in the background and saves the MP4 from YouTube to my local hard drive where I tell it to. And then I have a local PeerTube instance that is indexing that folder that these videos download to. So then the idea being that later on when we need to do something. So we wanted to go out to this location because... Uh, Our friends here are very handy. They've helped us build things in in the past, but have the ability to watch the tutorials and stuff that we have found so useful on YouTube without having YouTube. Right. I mean, that's kind of a lot of the workflow, especially for home improvement stuff these days, right? It's like, uh, can I reconsult this six times so I can figure out what I'm doing? Oh, it's so great, right? Like, seriously, now, if we need to go, like, fix something in the plumbing or 
check something with the wiring, one of my first stops now is I check YouTube and see if somebody else is torn this thing apart in their RV and has replaced it before. Or how do you change the oil in the generator? I learned via YouTube. So I want to collect all those. And I have a playlist where I've saved a lot of these on YouTube already. Not all of them, but a lot of them. And I want to be able to add more as time goes on when I do have internet connectivity. Uh, I think uh, Brent, Casey, and myself all have the same question. Brent, take it away. Chris, why are you landing on PeerTube instead of something like Jellyfin or even Plex that you already have in place? That's a great question. Can't you just download it to a folder there and it's already doing everything for you? So I'll do all of the above. I will have it indexed by Plex or Jellyfin. So it'll be available on the TV. But I'm, I am imagining in five years, we could be looking at 300 videos because it's not just going to be RV stuff. It's going to be any kind of construction things that Hidea wants to work on. It's going to be gardening topics. It's going to be an oracle of information. And I think one of the ways to browse that is by having a front, a YouTube like front end that has search, that has categories, that has playlists. Uh, I think there is real utility to that. I don't think it's going to be. And what's great about having this as my own oracle here is I can consume it in any way I want. So I could just bring up the file system and look at the MP4 files. I could bring it up on Jellyfin on the TV, or I could do PeerTube on our computer. And if you think about how you kind of start a project like this, it's usually you bring up the laptop or something like that. You start looking at stuff. I think it's just one of the nice ways to do it. But combine that with... Right now, and to your question earlier, Brent, I'm using something called, oh, I always get the name wrong, Wes. <laughs> oh, I can't wait for this one. And you only have it in your secret doc, so we, don't, we can't help you. <laughs> You're on your own this time. I think it's uh, Rentio. Okay. R-A-N-E-T-O. Rantio? Rantio. Ranteo. I don't know, because that E's before the T. I don't know. But this, oh, God, it's such a simple but powerful tool. Markdown powered knowledge base. It sits on top hmm. of just markdown files, not a database. N- not, you could SSH in, write it all up in nano like a gentleman, save it to the file system. And then the next time you load this page up, it'll be on there. And it, then it displays it as the HTML version. Hmm, mustache templates. It also gives you search. It's just a, basically it's a Node.js app, right? I think I think I, I don't remember, but I seem to recall it just being a Node.js app. Uh, but it's a it really nice way to present the information. It supports uh, syntax highlighting. It does have a search powered by Lunar, L-U-N-R. And of, of course, it uses Markdown, which is my preferred way to take notes. And so you can document, like what I've done in the past, I'll document something using VS Code. I have the SSH save as extension installed. Mm. And then I just save as to this directory. And then the next time we pull this up, all the information is there. That's nice. I'll also, uh, it's where I also capture like my Docker Compose files for, uh, you know, looking up later on. And I really like this workflow, but I'm also, and I would love feedback if anybody out there has tried Bookstack. I'm looking at Bookstack. This is really similar. It's at bookstackapp.com. This leans a little more towards Wiki. And I know, oh man, I know there's so many Wikis. <laughs> Tiny Wiki, tiddly Wiki. I, I know, and they're really good. I like, no one else could see this, but you pointed at, at the IRC room. I did. As if they were trying to send you Wikis. I totally like, just wagged my finger. <laughs> I know, chat room, like I know. the torrent of Wikis is coming for you. <laughs> the links are coming. Uh, but Bookstack is a simple, self-hosted, easy-to-use platform for organizing and storing information. And again, Markdown supported, MIT licensed. It's up on GitHub, uh, and you can uh, use a WYSIWYG interface to take the notes if you like. It supports things like chapters. You can organize things into books. 
I mean, it seems really powerful and it also has some authentication options. So you can actually be, that's my one thing is. Uh Yeah, that's a whole other layer here. Yeah. I don't have that kind of security with Ranteo or however you say it. Um, And this even supports like two-factor authentication, which could be really nice when you want to put like sensitive information in there. And I could then take it to the next level. Uh, And it'll also integrate with a single sign-on provider and that kind of stuff. So I'd love to know if anybody has experience with Bookstack. Send me a like a boost or a send me a an email and let me know what your experiences are with it. If you have, because I'm I'm considering it, but it seems like a big jump. And then last but not least, I think it's pronounced Heimdall, H-E-I-M-D-A-L-L. This is what I'm going to set on our home pages for our browsers at home. That is a really easy to build home dashboard where, where I'll have links to the knowledge base, ah. links to home assistant. You can have widgets in there. I'll have the Bitcoin price in there because I like to torture myself like that. And you can have news headlines in there, feeds in there. Very easy to set up. And all of this, uh, uh, just about all of this is even available as a Linux server IO. Oh, cool. Container. Great. I don't know if all of it is, but most of it, if not all of it. So this is my journey I'm starting. My goal is by August. To have all of this implemented, the reason why I'm giving myself that much time is because I'm still considering hardware changes. Right. I'm going to go into a lot more detail on self-hosted once I have it all figured out. And nice. I'll, I'll document the journey there and what I end up with it all. But th- I'm at the very beginning phase right now with the idea of really taking this offline home that I have in, our, in, in Jupes right now, which is made up of two to three pies, depending if I want my camera recorder going or not. And I'm curious to know if I could, how I can refactor that um, and you know what this next generation of software is looking at. I, I'm I'm kind of reconsidering doing my entire home assistant setup. Like it's a wow. big summer project coming up. Yeah, I like this. Yeah, I think it's going to be good. And I suspect it's all going to really come down to just the least friction for the family to get the information they need. Like whatever system they they take, like whatever they're good with, I can adapt. I'll adapt to that. Yeah, you just need them to buy into the system yeah, at all, right? That's going to be part of this process is you got to get family buy-off. Otherwise, uh, it, you know, like, for example, if my wife idea isn't inputting the information, um, then we're only capturing half the stuff. And, you know, she keeps really good track of all of, like, the repair records and stuff. Uh, and that's yeah. a great example of something I'd love in the system like this. So we shall see. But I'd love to hear people's experience with it. And that's a, it was an adorable picture of Levi, wasn't it? Oh, I could I could share the link. Couldn't we? Yeah, I'm going to put a link. I'll put Absolutely. a link to the, uh, you guys can get the show notes if you want to run, run that through a decryptor. That's my Levi right there. So can you tell us which piece of software you use to uh, throw your information behind a Levi? Your dogonography, let's say? You know, I tried a couple of desktop apps, but then I realized I wanted to just do it here at the studio machine. I didn't want to have to install anything. So I just Google searched a, a web dogonography tool, which is why I think it botched my markdown. If I'd used a proper oh, app. You're throwing shade on the tool, huh? Oh, yeah. It was my markdown's not, my markdown's solid, dude. What are you talking about? My markdown is, my markdown is absolutely solid, so it's not my fault. And now, as the French say, it is time for Le Boost. Why don't we do, before we get to the boost, just some super compact follow-up to last week's episode. Last week, we talked about the Umbral project, which let which lets you run containers and do self hosting with their front end UI, and they followed up with our on our episode and let us know that one of the features they're rolling out in the near future is the ability to uninstall the Bitcoin node aspect of that. So if Umbral sounded interesting, but you didn't want to dedicate the disk space to a, a node, 
that's going to now just be like one of the apps that you'll be able to install or remove. Nice. Yeah. Also on the topic of Umbral, a software update included the Snowflake Tor proxy, which is really easy, just one click to install now. They're doing this to help Ukrainian and Russian journalists and activists and civilians that are trying to bypass internet restrictions and really anyone who needs to use the Tor project to help bypass censorship. This Snowflake Tor proxy is a standalone project on its own. I'll have a link to it in the show notes if you're interested. And it's a way to add some uh, capacity to the Tor network without revealing your own IP. It uses an IP from the Tor node internally, and you're helping route some of that. And it's run by volunteers, and now it's a one-click app install on Umbral if uh, you would like to do so. Slick. But we do have some boosts. We do have some boosts. Uh, Batvin321 sent this in two days ago, 50 sats, which is like uh, uh, 0.2 cents, I think, something like that. Uh, But uh, Bat lives on the East Coast, and he's looking to hitch hitch a ride with somebody from Maryland for five hours to get to the meetup. So if you want a road buddy from Maryland on, send a boost to us with your contact info, and we will put you guys in touch. Heck yeah. We got another boost from Dave Jones. He seems to be one of our favorites. He says, eight terabytes. Holy crap. You have enough room for 50 years of blockchain. Huzzah. Yeah, but I got to run multiple nodes, right? I got to have space for I'm running. I'm running other nodes. Yeah, you're on all kinds of chains. I love it. George boosts in with a thousand sats. Trying out the Lightning Network. Thanks for the awesome recommendation. Thank you, George. One of the reasons we are featuring the boosts in the show, because seriously, that's not a lot of money, although we really do appreciate it. I think the more we build this out and it's a peer-to-peer network, the more possibilities we have down the road of finding other alternative ways to finance free software. And we have, we have free software developers in Ukraine right now that they and now their whole world's just changed. We have free software developers in Russia. Their whole world just changed. Like we need to have a system that maybe runs parallel to all of that. And so as the audience of the world's largest Linux podcast begins to adopt a system like this, we are building out a peer-to-peer network that is the same exact kind of audience that is likely to help contribute to free software. So I think there is, you know, when George gets all hooked up here, he's trying out the Lightning Network. He's building a pathway now that if his favorite free software project down the road starts doing this, starts running free software and taking a free software currency over the internet, he now has all the plumbing to support that project. I think that's huge. Also, Matt wrote in as well. He says, y'all should really check out Start9's Embassy. Same idea as Umbral with a different approach. I personally use Umbral and love it, but it seems like the Start9 guys are focused on the long term. Great interview with one of the guys from Start9, and he linked to us. Guys, have you heard of Start9 before? This was We, we got a few people writing in about it, and uh, I hadn't heard of it before. I don't think I had either. No. No, it looks great. Same kind of idea. You can either buy a uh, like a box. So they got a six hundred and thirty dollar box that has a two terabyte SSD connected to a Raspberry Pi four, and it's that same idea of a plug and play private server that allows one click installation with some good sane defaults of some of the most powerful, popular self hosted applications that allow you to take sovereign control over your data or your finances or your chat, or whatever it might be. And what do you know, a DIY guide with a Raspberry Pi. Yeah, that's pretty nice. I thought their model was kind of interesting, too. They, uh, y- You can buy Start9 OS for like 180 USD, or you can build it yourself, which is their seemingly, I think, only sort of do-yourself open source version. So uh, I thought that was 
fascinating, and hopefully it, it keeps the project going as well. It seems like they're doing some interesting work. Yeah, I mean, imagine, dude, like if this thing helps you de-Google completely, that's probably worth 180 bucks. Oh, I'd say so. Yeah. Sometimes it's nice to see that they've at least, whether or not you like it, they're at least thinking about how to, um, you know, support themselves and keep development going. So if right. you're, you're going to buy into the platform, that's probably good. And the reality is putting a price on it that's, that's $180 is real money, right? That's five bucks isn't going to pay the bills. $180 maybe actually makes a difference and it makes a project sustainable. Like that's, we, I think we're going to have to come around and realize that boutique software, anything that's a small boutique team working on something for a niche audience is always going to be struggling to monetize. And that comes for content or it comes, it's true for free software development. And, uh, you know, that's why I, I look at the price $630 for a machine. That's, you know, there's probably not even a lot of profit in that for them, but there's definitely some because they're building around a pie and a case and a, and a whole setup. So hopefully, hopefully start nine is something that could be around for a while because sovereign computing, as this term is becoming more popular, I can really wrap my head around that. It doesn't have to have anything to do with Bitcoin. It can just mean you switched to Bitwarden from LastPass. Maybe it means you switched from WhatsApp to Matrix or, you know, something like that. It, it, it is, I think it'll be a really important topic on the show for a while is applying self-control where you decide it's appropriate and not being a hardliner about it, not being a purist about it, but being sensible and realistic and practical about it and realize that each one of us has our own comfort level. So let's talk about what some of our options are. Yeah, Chris, I agree. And uh, Dave also wrote in about Start9. He sort of clued us onto that, but he asked a question about Tor specifically. And I thought that was worth mentioning since we forgot to mention it last week. He said, I've uh, been hearing you guys rave about Umbral. It sent me down the rabbit hole of this type of all-in-one server solution, which I'm, I'm diving in with you. Uh, while doing my research on Umbral, I caught a post about Start9. Um, on, the, on the surface, it seems very similar to Umbral with a focus on Bitcoin and privacy-based apps. What I found interesting was their use of the Tor network to allow secure access to your home lab remotely. Have you seen this before? I currently rely on WireGuard via TailScale for my home lab access, but I was intrigued by the Tor idea. That is really handy. Uh, Umbral does this as well. We didn't really get into it, but uh, my methodology is actually to use TailScale. I'm a little more comfortable with that, and I just per, I prefer to turn the Tor stuff off. However, the nice thing is some developers are building Tor support into the client app on your phone. And so you can connect to your Umbral services or your Start9 services over Tor. And the, the advantage to that is, besides the obvious privacy advantages, which are not insignificant. The advantage is that you don't have to fumble around with NAT or port forwarding or any of that junk. You don't have to start bringing in outside connections from any WAN address into your LAN. You don't worry about any of that. These um, systems help generate Tor addresses for your individual applications running on them. Now, you can, you can look into the security or safety of that. I have preferred just to turn it off. But it's certainly nice because if you leave it on, then you get one of these apps like Blue Wallet or some of these other apps that can connect to these different services and you give them your onion address or whatever it's called or your whatever the URL is. I really don't use Tor enough to probably talk about it intelligently. But then the app can connect to it without, again, any ports being opened or anything like that. It's really nice. Yeah, you can see it acting as a sort of the standard, right, that, yeah, different parties can come to and then you're on the same uh, higher level network. Yeah. You know, what I loved about these platforms is that and I think I mentioned this last week, is that for me, it was just a, maybe a touching stone on, on investigating a bunch of technologies I'm curious about. And so 
getting to play with Tor, I've heard of it for decades, but um, to have it just be like accessible so easily via Umbral, it was really fun, actually, just booting up the Tor browser and seeing kind of how that works. Maybe we should do an episode on unique use cases for Tor. And maybe, you know, because that kind of would go well with our IPFS episode. Yeah. I don't know, something to think about. If people have any ideas, send us a boost. Boostagram. Get a new podcast app at newpodcastapps.com. And then uh, send us a boost and let you let us know what you think we should cover with Tor or IPFS. That would be pretty great. Uh, I think that could be an area that we could probably find some unique uses for. I wonder if there's a way we could get access to a system in the studio using Tor and then people could could do something. I think we could have fun with that. Come find us at a future Onion address. <laughs> yeah, we may have one for you soon. Uh, or join us live and hang out while we're producing these shows. We do them on Sundays at noon Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern at jblive.tv. Or you can twatch us at twitch.tv slash Jupiter Broadcasting, and then you get a twatchification when we go live. And that seems pretty useful. See you next week. Same bad time, same bad station. If you haven't caught Linux action news yet, what are you doing? How about some accurate, concise coverage that tells you exactly what you need to know without any of the stupid drama added in, with clear explanations on how it impacts you and the wider industry? Because that's Linux Action News. That's what you're missing. Oh my God, that's embarrassing. LinuxActionNews.com. Go get it. More Wes Payne over there as well. So how could you miss it? Links to everything we talked about today are at LinuxUnplugged.com slash 448. Our contact page for your emails, which we love, LinuxUnplugged.com slash contact. Thanks so much for joining us on this week's episode of the Unplugged program. And we'll see you right back here next Sunday. We vote on the title at jbtitles.com. I think we should give some airtime to OneNote because I know it has its <laughs> lovers. And in full balance, I think it's only appropriate. So uh, none of us use it. So New Wes has offered to be the OneNote guy. You know what? I appreciate it on a Linux show, a guy who's willing to come on and admit he uses OneNote. So tell us why you love it so much. I don't know if I love it so much as is the right term. Uh, try and save a little bit of face there, right? <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, but I I like how it's very, it's so incredibly easy to, to like set up and get going. And you don't have to worry about manually syncing anything. Mm. You don't have to worry about self-hosting, right? It's kind of... It's kind of along those lines of like why your average person doesn't have a Nextcloud instance, right? Because there's like a lot of things that you have to do in order to get that kind of functionality working. And so I've never looked into sort of like note taking apps and I, y'all always talk about, you know, oh, I just take my notes in Markdown or whatever. It's like, I'm not great at Markdown. Not yet. So I, I can't really, it, it, that doesn't come as easy to me. Mm. And so the fact that OneNote just like, syncs and uh, I can access it via a web UI as well. 
right? Which is how I use it on Linux. Ah, I was going to ask about that. Yeah. Wait, okay, hold on. Hold on. Hey, hey, tap the brakes. Is this a hosted OneNote that you're accessing? Is it your own local instance over the web? Like, how does that work? It's Microsoft. So, so you just. It, so it's like a hosted thing. Yeah, it's like a hosted thing. Yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah, okay. and then I log into my Microsoft account, and it syncs all of my OneNote notebooks that I have. Uh, I I've got the apps on my phone and my tablet too, which is great. It's got really good pen support. So I've got like a tab S6 light. Mm. And uh, so if I want to do handwritten notes, I just pull out my pen, I pull out my tablet and I just write handwritten notes down. That part's tempting too. Best of both worlds right there. I would like to try that. Man, I would like to try. Yeah, it's really, it's, it's super easy. And uh, I, I think the one thing I don't like about it, aside from obviously the privacy concerns, right, is probably that it gets a little messy. I feel like I have to go in and prune my notebooks because I've got a whole bunch of them. And because you don't really control the data, like I haven't, I, and I haven't really dedicated a lot of time to this either, but I find that I have like a bunch of old notebooks that I've kind of like created and jotted one or two notes down. And now they're just like forever. They're getting synced across all of my devices. <laughs> yes. Uh, all right. Well, thanks for the one note perspective. Here's to you, Microsoft. 